Hello, my name is Kelly Kelly. Welcome to the NICU Now audio support series. I am a NICU parent to Jackson, a micro preemie born at 24 weeks, and Lauren, a late-term preemie born at 34 weeks. I am also the founder and executive director of Hand to Hold, a national nonprofit dedicated to providing education, resources, and peer-to-peer support to families that have experienced premature birth, the loss of a baby, or have a child with a special health care need. Hand to Hold's NICU Now audio support series was developed to help NICU parents navigate their NICU journey. Before my child was born so early and sick, I did not even know what the acronym NICU stood for. Those four letters which have come to shape my life in so many ways were foreign to me. When they took me to see my baby for the first time, I had no idea what to expect behind those locked double doors. For medical professionals, the tubes, lighting, monitors, and needles are commonplace. They understand their medical necessity. But as parents, we struggle to see past the tubes and wires to see our babies. The medical equipment, while necessary, presents a physical and psychological barrier between us. Beyond the shock of that initial view is the overwhelming sense of uncertainty, fear, and helplessness that are synonymous with a NICU stay. These emotions engulfed me during my son's first days and weeks in the NICU. I felt like Alice in Wonderland. I had fallen down a rabbit hole and everything seemed upside down and off-center. I needed someone to give me a magic key, a key that would unlock this magical world and help me find my role there. In the book, Juniper, the girl who was born too soon, Kelly Benham French describes the NICU as the zero zone, writing, It was a place that existed outside of time, apart from everything I used to know and from the person I used to be. It was as if I'd been jerked out of my own shoes, out of the life I recognized. Every second was an improbable gift and an agonizing eternity. Would my baby die today? Would she die before lunch? If I left for an hour, would she die while I was gone? There was no future, no past. There was only a desperate struggle to maintain. Joining us now to talk about finding our footing as parents in the zero zone is Kelly Benham French. Kelly is a professor of practice and journalism at Indiana University. A former reporter and editor for the Tampa Bay Times, she was a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Never Let Go, a series about her daughter Juniper's early birth at 23 weeks and six days. She is a co-author, along with her husband, of the book Juniper, The Girl Who Was Born Too Soon, that chronicles their challenges with infertility and the fear, sadness, exhaustion, and joy of their daughter's 196-day NICU journey. Welcome, Kelly. I am so thrilled to have you be a part of our NICU Now podcast. Oh, hey, thank you so much for having me. What a great idea this is. Well, it really was inspired by you and Tom being interviewed on Radio Lab for their story, 23 Weeks and Six Days. I 
when I heard your story, I just started thinking about how could we use the voices of other NICU parents and NICU professionals to help current NICU parents while they're at their baby's bedside. So I'm just so excited for you to be a part of this series. You know, I'm a huge fan of your book, and I've had the privilege of hearing you speak at two conferences, and both times you brought me to tears, and both times the audience gave you a standing ovation. So you are a tremendous writer, a beautiful speaker, and just are able to articulate the emotions and expectations and challenges of a NICU stay so beautifully. So I'm so excited, like I said, to share you with our NICU now listeners. So I want to start by just talking about those emotions. Tell us what was it like for you during those first days and weeks in the NICU? What were you feeling when Juniper was born Again, 23 weeks and six days, I think weighing a little more than a pound. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was, I felt incredible guilt, I guess. Um, Even though I, I, you know, it wasn't my fault, you know, anything that happened, but you're not, you're not thinking logically or rationally in in that situation. Um, You're incredibly hormonal and sleep deprived and panicked and just hormones are going crazy. And I just felt like I'd been given this incredibly incredible gift and I had bungled it. You know, I had, first of all, I had trouble conceiving her and then I failed to carry her. And then I was trying to pump milk and that wasn't working out. And I, I couldn't hold her and I couldn't do any of the things that a mom is supposed to do with a new baby. And, you know, I don't, I think moms, we don't make it easy on each other. Um, And all my mom groups on Facebook, you know, everyone's talking about delayed cord clamping and home births and eating the placenta and like all of these things that you're supposed to do to prove yourself to be like a super mom. And, you know, have a birth plan, you know, I didn't even get, I didn't even get half, I got barely halfway through my pregnancy. So my birth plan became just everybody lived through it. And I just felt like a, a disaster at everything. I think that's pretty common. I really do. The funny part to me was the contrast between you and Tom and Tom French being your husband and co-author of Juniper. And he is also part of our Think You Now podcast series. But Tom was baking cookies and he was just this man on a mission in the NICU and uh, just so... Thank God, you know, thank God one of us had our act together. He was, you know, memorizing the names of every nurse and therapist on the floor and just really making himself known. And he was baking cookies and his cookies are amazing. (laughs) And he was there every morning at rounds while I was at home strapped to a pump and also really irritated me. Like, (laughs) it's like he's dad of the year. And I'm like, just as I was just a disaster. It just kind of amplified my feelings of failure, I think. 
I totally understand. Now, talk to us a little bit more about that pump because you do kind of compare it, you know, to being, I think you said anchored or chained to a chained in a dungeon, something like that in the book. And every hour you spent pumping, you're away from Juniper. I think you even talk about it kind of whispering to you. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that pump. Oh God. Um, I hate that. I hated that thing. I pumped for hours at a time because it just wasn't working. Like I, you know, I figured out later that I was, I had a no letdown response, but I didn't, since I never had a baby before, breastfed before, I didn't even know what letdown was. And so I didn't know that I wasn't having it. So I would just pump for hours and hours and hours just to get a few drops, like to get, half an ounce would have been a major victory for me in the first month. And I felt like I had to do it because I'd read about all of the studies about necrotizing arcolitis and the lactation consultants and the nurses had done an excellent job of letting me know how important it was. So it was kind of the one thing I could really do as a mother, you know, for my child. But it also was taking me away from her and I didn't know how much time I was going to have with her. So what if she died and I'd spent all of that time at the pump? Like how, how would I feel later? And then she had a number of different challenges that made her um, unable to eat. So all that milk would have gone to waste. So I was really torn about the whole pumping situation. Um, ultimately, I was really glad that I stuck it out because she did survive and not only did she survive, but she latched and ended up breastfeeding until she was four. So it ended up being a huge victory for me, but an incredibly difficult start. Right. I, I remember you, you saying the pump basically was whispering, you're pathetic, you're pathetic. And that just made me so sad, so sad when I read that for you. But I, I had similar feelings when I was, you know, sitting up in the middle of the night pumping and, and without the baby and being away from the baby was just tremendously difficult. I hated that pump. I still hate the pump. <laughs> I, you know, I kept, I spilled milk on myself all the time. I didn't want my husband seeing me like that. Um, I had stepsons in the house who were um, older and I didn't want them like even hearing that sound like getting that visual. Um, it was just, it was a horrible situation, but we do what we have to do. Yes, we do. We are warriors. We are warriors as moms in the NICU. My sister-in-law, um, he didn't have a preemie, but she told me that the pump talked to her too. And her pump said, work a little harder, work a little harder. <laughs> At one point you talked about that you just weren't sure how much longer you could handle the stress and you finally decided to see a counselor. Did you feel like that helped you? Would you recommend that for other moms and dads while they're in the NICU? I really want to demystify counseling. I think so many of us are scared to admit that we might need to talk to a therapist or a counselor. Well, it it wasn't ideal for me, actually, because um, my counselor was on the other side of town. She was super expensive, and I was paying out of pocket for it. So I only went the one time while, I, while we were actually in the NICU. I think the NICUs need to bring them in. They need to have them on hand. 
so you don't have to be away for a whole afternoon to see a counselor. But for me, I the reason I had to do it was because otherwise I was dumping it all on my husband, and he had enough to deal with. So it was really affecting our relationship. We were starting to fight, and I just I needed to download onto somebody else who wasn't him. But after we got out of the NICU and Juniper was home, I did start seeing a, a counselor, a different one, on a regular basis. And she's a counselor who specializes in trauma and particularly PTSD. And that was very helpful. I don't I don't feel like I have a lot of issues now with the NICU experience. Like I can talk about it and think about it and revisit that time pretty easily without breaking down. And I think it's because of the counseling I did. Wonderful. I, I think it's very important. I, I found it very helpful for me, and I just always wish that I hadn't waited so long because I think it really did impact my parenting and it impacted my relationship with my husband, like you said, and it impacted my ability to do a good job at work. I mean, it was there was just so many things that I I feel like... I could have handled differently had I've had the counseling. But I also think, you know, during the NICU stay, having a strong relationship with the NICU staff, uh, especially our baby's bedside nurse, can be extremely helpful and help us find our footing and talk about our emotions. So I know you had a really amazing uh, bedside nurse and a great relationship there. So tell us a little bit about how she helped you realize and find your role as a mom? God, she was essential. You know, it's the nurse who really pulls you in and helps you figure out how to be involved and how to engage because it is so scary and intimidating. Just the NICU itself is so artificial and science fiction-y and baby doesn't really look like you ever expect a baby to look. They look so alien and so fragile and and scary. And I remember when I first saw Juniper just being afraid to get attached. I mean, I already was attached, but I felt like I was just there to watch her die, you know, and that was really hard. So I didn't know how much to connect. And the nurse but, you know, the first thing they do is they say, you can touch her. <laughs> Come in here, you know, scrub your hands. Here's the hand sanitizer. Put your hands, and they show you how to touch the baby. Um, just cupping their hands around the head and feet and not stroking the skin because the skin is so fragile. And then they do their cute little nurse things that they do. Like they, she put a little bow on the baby. And, like, that's that's such a simple gesture. but there's a message inside of that gesture. And the message is that this is your daughter. This is not just a patient. You know, it's a little girl. And come over here and get to know her. And then, you know, they say, come over here and change the diaper. You're the mom, change the diaper. And that's so terrifying to change that diaper the first time because it's so small and there are wires everywhere. But then you start to live for those little moments, you know, the the time every day when you might get to lift her so that they can um, get the weight in the incubator or, you know, you might get to swab the mouth. It was just little things like sometimes I'd come in and maybe the weight of the IV in her hand had 
sort of pulled her hand away from midline. And I could tell when I put it back to midline that it would really soothe her. And that's when I started to feel like, okay, there, there are things I can do here. In your book, you describe Juniper, or Junebug, as you and Tom affectionately call her. You say she's she was perpetually dying, then not dying, then dying again. And you realized you had to create a world for her right there in the NICU that was beyond her box. So wanting her to experience the world and experience life, I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about how you and Tom went about creating that world for her. I could see that she had this incredible will. What you're looking at when you're looking at a 23-year-old baby is the core of a human being, right? She's not shaped by any experience at all because she hasn't had any experiences. Her brain isn't even developed. Um, She doesn't have the capacity for complex thought or really for memory. So you're just looking at this like raw seed of a human and that's humbling and powerful. But as I tried to figure out what she might perceive or what life might be like for her, you know, she can't see because her eyes are still fused. Touch is important, but she can't, she can't be touched in certain ways and she can't be held So that was tricky. But one thing that she really did have was sound. She could hear. And even very, very early babies can recognize their mother's voice. So that was an advantage that that we had. I just thought if all she knows is needle sticks and darkness, then why would she fight? So... I said, well, I I just want her to have one good day. Because if she could have one good day, she would want one more and one more after that and one more after that. So how are we going to create that for her? So my husband, on a really, really bad night, and I thought she was dying, he got the Harry Potter books out. He started to read to her, and he picked this seven-volume series that's 4,000 pages long, which at the time I just thought was absurd and just a sign that he was a little bit not himself, <laughs> but he wanted to read the first chapter, which is the girl who lived. I mean, I'm sorry. It's the boy who lived. <laughs> and he wanted her just to hear the rhythms and the sounds of his voice. And he said to me, I want her to know that she's not alone. And that's really what it was at first. We just wanted her to know that she wasn't alone. So we'd hold her hand. We'd sing to her. We'd read to her. And pretty quickly, we could see by the monitors that she responded to that. She sat at higher when we were singing to her, playing certain songs that she liked. And she could tell us pretty reliably which songs were her favorites and which ones she didn't like. And if we played a song she didn't like, the alarms would start to go off. And we would have to change the music right away. And um, she went through a hokey pokey phase that I thought was never going to end. And as soon as we stopped singing the hokey pokey, she would crash. And the nurses would say, keep singing. Um, So we developed this way to communicate with her. And we, we wanted to just give her a sense of something waiting for her. Something like some expectation. And Tom said the sweetest thing, you know, maybe that he's ever said he said a story is a promise it's a promise that the ending is worth waiting for that's what we wanted to create for her it was just a sense that 
life is worth the fight. Well, I found it interesting that, you know, Tom picked the Harry Potter series, but you picked Winnie the Pooh. And those stories are about, you know, love and friendship and faith. And I wonder, was there a specific reason why you chose the Winnie the Pooh series? Well, I read her some Harry Potter too. I mean, I'm as big a Harry Potter fan as anyone. But I think there's just a, um, there's a sweetness to the Winnie the Pooh stories and there's there are many lines that would just bring me to tears I remember reading her I just want to be sure of you and just about losing it and of course you know she's tiny like Piglet and she's joyful like Tigger and um, I just have always loved the original stories not the Disney uh, versions but the, the original classics well I also thought it was important for you to express and to share what it felt like when you finally held Juniper. It was a strange moment because I was completely not expecting it. So I was totally unprepared. And also we had family arriving at the, like the exact moment that it was all happening. Tom had like three siblings showing up, um, which was a little bit distracting, but ultimately really cool because when I saw how everyone was so excited to meet her, it felt like she wasn't a mishap or, you know, uh, a sick baby, but just part of a tribe, part of a, a really loving, connected, beautiful tribe that was ecstatic to welcome her into it and they you know she was a pound and a half and still on a ventilator she was only two weeks old when I held her and it's controversial you know whether kangaroo care is how doable it is for babies that fragile and I, I learned later that the only reason they let me do it is because they thought she was dying and they wanted to make sure I got a chance to hold her while she was still alive but she did great. It took them about 45 minutes to move her from the incubator onto my chest. It was this very elaborate choreographed little dance that they did. I kept thinking, oh my God, what if they trip? (laughs) (laughs) There was all these poles and wires everywhere. They they settled her in onto my chest and she just immediately started satting in the 90s. She did great. And I felt like we were back together again. You know, all I, what I what I felt when I first saw her in the incubator was I just wanted to put her back inside me and keep her safe. And I, you know, I couldn't do that. And when I when I held her, I felt like just for a little while we were okay again. That was that was beautiful. One of my absolute favorite parts of the book is when you talk to Juniper right before a very critical surgery. You tell her you tell her all those things that you so want her to experience after the NICU. And it's just so beautiful. And I know you're gonna cry, but I really I want you to read that to our listeners. Would you mind sharing that with them? Yeah, I mean this is the hardest part. Right. Um, she was 
dying, and they sent her to an incredibly risky surgery that was expected to kill her because they really had no other chance. They had no other options. I was thinking, you know, this is the last thing I ever get to say to my daughter. What does what does she need to hear her mother say? So obviously, you know, I told her I loved her, and I told her I was proud of her, and I told her how strong she was. Um, and I also said, um, let me read this. Okay. Soon our baby was headed to the operating room. The nurses were busying about connecting the mobile ventilator and the portable monitor. I held her hand. She was looking at me, right at me in a way she never had before. Her eyes were dark pools, taking in everything, taking in my face and my voice. It won't always be like this, baby. There's some things you need to know about, like ice cream. You won't believe the chocolate milkshake at Coney Island Grill. And at home, there's a goofy dog named Muppet who will lick you too much, and her breath stinks, but you can tell her all your secrets and she'll never share. You have your own room with a zebra on the wall, and a round crib, and a soft rocking chair where I will hold you. We'll take you to a Springsteen concert if he can keep going long enough, and you can hear waiting on a sunny day and watch him slide across the stage. We'll take you to Fort DeSoto Beach, and you can mush your toes in the sand. Someday, when you're bigger, you'll ride a horse bareback in the sun, and you'll go so fast your eyes will water. You'll dance in your jammies. You'll hold my hand, and I'll take you to school. And when the bell rings at the end of the day, I'll be waiting for you. Kelly, I just absolutely love that. I do, and I I wish so much I had a thought to say those things to my son. I don't think it ever even occurred to me to, to tell him all that he had to look forward to. So I just encourage all the parents that are listening to, to make that list of things that they want their kids to know about and know what they're going to share after the NICU. That is just so incredibly powerful and meaningful. And I, I think it helps not only the baby, but it helps the parents to know what, what, they, what, what to look forward to, what to hold on to, to give us something to encourage us. Yeah, my stepsons um, are incredible human beings. And on that day, each of them sent recordings for her too, little voice recordings, and we played them for her in the incubator. And I have a video of us playing one of them, and it just breaks my heart. They talk to her about all the cool things that she has to look forward to. And one one thing my stepson did was send a card that we read to her, and it, it was sort of like a guide to being a part of our family. <laughs> like I all the things it. you need to know, what you need to know about mom and dad. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I'm just so glad that that they wrote those things down. Because if, if we hadn't gone through this incredibly trying and difficult experience, they may never have. And And now she has that. Well, you do say in the book that, you know, even though Juniper's Nikki stay w- w- was incredibly difficult some of the greatest moments of your life were tucked into that misery and I was just hoping you could you could expand on that a little bit more there's no question that if I could spare her that experience I wouldn't I would do anything but for myself I wouldn't change a single day of it 
because I, I would never want to go back to the person that I was before. Um, it taught me so much and it made me such a, such a better person. It's a cliche, but it's really true. And it gave me these experiences that are so rare and so precious. I mean, who gets to see their child form in front of their eyes? I got to see her edge into consciousness. I got to see her eyes open, literally and figuratively. I got to see her become aware. Her personality was in evidence from the day she was born, but I really got to see it grow and develop. Um, I got to see a miracle unfold. And I got to ask myself some really hard questions about what I value and what I'm willing to do. And I got to see her strength and her resolve. And I have reminded myself of that so many times. And I've reminded her of it. You know, when she falls off her bike and and cries and she says, I can't do it, Mommy. I say, you're the strongest person I've ever known. And she'll get back on the bike um, because she's she's taken ownership of that. She says, Mommy, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the girl who lived. I'm a girl who doesn't give up. And um, I have seen my husband and the strength in him that I didn't know was there, that I will never forget. And so I think if she, I often wonder, you know, if she hadn't survived, would I be okay? And I don't know. I thank God I didn't have to go through that. But I do think that I would not regret the decision to try, you know, the decision to resuscitate her and give her a chance because I got to know her in that time and I got, I got to let her know us and we got to have a relationship and I got to be her mom and we got to let her know that she wasn't alone. And I don't think I would regret that or give it or give up those days or those moments for anything. I became kind of addicted to the, um, the prayer book in the hospital chapel when people write down their prayers, I like, I like to go read them. And it always struck me. First of all, it was a reminder that what we were going through was not the worst. You know, um, it feels like the worst when you're going through it, but it's not, it's not like having a six year old in, in the oncology floor. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not like having a child who's a little older and more aware of what's happening, going through something really hard. And so it was always humbling to think about what was happening on all the other floors of the hospital. Um, but despite that, all of the prayers in the prayer book were prayers of, of gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you for today. Thank you for one more day. And that it tells you that parents are having the same experiences, you know, it's an incredible trial, but there are gifts tucked inside of it too. When I started out, I had all these anxieties and all these questions. And probably the driving question that I had is, how am I her mother? And am I doing the things a mother is supposed to do? And am I going to bond with this child? Is she going to recognize me as her mother? She spent more time with the nurse than she did with me. So is she going to think Tracy's her mother? Again, it goes back to that anxiety that moms kind of inflict on each other by sort of the 
you know, the pressure we put on each other, I think, to have the perfect birth experience and to do everything right. That's snatched away from us when we have our baby four months too early. So how how am I her mother? And my husband had told me long before we started any of this that a lot of being a parent is just showing up. And I found that in the NICU to really be true. So much of it is just showing up and being there. And that enables you to provide consistency in their care and to notice things that other people might not notice. And just to let the baby know that someone is is there with them, that they're not alone. And over time, you realize that you've seen this miracle unfold. And my friends would all say, well, it's a miracle. And But that almost feels dismissive in a way, like, well, it's a miracle. I don't picture like a white-bearded God in a golden robe, like laying a lightning bolt finger on my baby and saying, save this one and not the one next door. It's just not how I see it. To me, there is this, there is this miracle, but there's all these pieces to it. There's the 23-year-old rookie nurse who had never seen a case of necrotizing intercolitis. But one day she had a feeling that something wasn't right and she acted on it, even though the monitors showed everything was okay. The fact that the neonatologist who saved Juniper's life really wanted to be an artist when she was a child, but her mother told her, now you have a responsibility to help people. And her mother kind of pushed her into medicine. The million things that Tracy did every day. And I was explaining all this to my friend Stephen one day at lunch, and he said, you know what, you're thinking too hard. Love is the miracle. The miracle is that we can love each other. That's it. I was just really struck by that. I think that is so true. The doctors and the nurses in that hospital didn't just treat her like a patient. They loved her. And it was evident every day. And they made Tom and I feel safe enough and supported enough that we could really love her too, that we could totally engage as her parents. And so how did I become a mother? You know, well, by doing all of the little tiny things every day that mothers do. I mean, motherhood, it turns out, is not glamorous, as you know. (laughs) You know, it's cleaning up puke at two in the morning and bringing the lunch that the kid forgot and stepping on Legos and making sure they've got warm pants. You know, it's all making sure they get to the dentist. It's all of these little unglamorous, low reward kind of things. And it's that way in the NICU too. It's just being there. And, you know, my daughter and I are so close now. I can't believe I ever worried about it. Kind of coming full circle, I know that uh, you took Juniper back to the NICU to see the nurses. She had sh- You share her story with her often. She want, That's kind of one of her bedtime stories. She wants to hear the story of when she was in your tummy and when she was born too soon and when she was sick. And you just lovingly share that with her. But she wanted to see the NICU. So in the book, you talk about taking her back and her getting into that incubator. I can only imagine what that must have been like for you to see her <laughs> as, as I believe, how old was she at the time? Was she four or five? Four. <laughs> she was four. Yeah, yeah. I just called and said, you know, she's been asking me for the same story every night for, gosh, it's been like eight months at that point. Tell me about when I was a baby. Tell me about when I was in the hospital. Tell me about when I was sick. 
And I, she'd seen all the pictures and video and everything, and she was kind of obsessing on it. So I said, can I just bring her in, you know, for a minute <laughs> and just show her? And they have private rooms in the NICU, so they set up one of the private rooms for her with an incubator in it. And she has a little doll that's one pound, four ounces, and 11 and a half inches long, just like she was when she was born. And she brought her little doll, and she put it in the incubator, and they, the doctors and nurses who had taken care of her all came by and just spent tons of time with her. And they showed her how to listen to the heartbeat, and they put they put leads and wires and monitors on the, ba- on the little baby doll and put a little hat on the baby doll and a little pacifier and a little tiny diaper, and they showed her exactly everything that they did to take care of her. And this, this room that we were in was across the hall from the actual room that she'd been in. So I got to show her that room too. And then she just climbed on up and got right inside the incubator. And it was just hilarious. And uh, Dr. Shaquille, who had taken such heroic care of her, you know, listened to her heart. And she said, Juniper, you have a beautiful heart. And of course, I'm just crying. And um, then there was this mom who came by. We were just sort of walking by in the hall and kind of looked in. And the nurse kind of whispered to her. And her eyes kind of got wide. And she started crying. She was looking at Juniper. And she was saying, my God, she's so beautiful. She's so perfect. She's so beautiful. And she had that look about her. You could tell she was postpartum just a couple of days. And she said, do you want to see my baby? And I said, sure. And Juniper said, I want to see the baby. So we went and she took us over to this incubator that was in the pod, the sort of open area where Juniper had started her life and lifted up the quilt. And there was a baby born at 23 weeks, just like Juniper, one pound, four ounces, just like Juniper, just a couple of days old. And I thought that I would be prepared for that. Like I thought... I'd lived through it, and I had the pictures and the video to prove it, and I thought I was immune to what I was going to see. But when she lifted up that quilt and I saw that baby, my knees almost went out from under me. It was just so overwhelming, the fragility of it and the strength inside that child. And Juniper was didn't feel any of that. She just thought it was cool. She just said, why, is the, why does the baby have a bracelet? Why does the baby have a hat? Um so I got to spend some time with that mom and we became friends and that little baby, Olivia, sailed through the NICU, didn't have one problem. I think she's she's two now, I think. And she's just doing amazing. That's so f- wonderful that you got to be there and that mom got to lay her eyes on a NICU graduate. I think It is inspirational for parents in the NICU when they have pictures on the walls of the NICU graduates or they have someone in their life that they know who's been through that journey. I just so appreciate and respect the fact that you knew enough to create that world for her and believe in her and be there for her 
and your marriage is stronger and you now have this beautiful book to share your story with and inspire so many people. So Kelly, I just encourage you keep, keep going out on that speaking circuit and, and, uh, keep promoting that book. And, uh, we're going to do the same, but thank you for inspiring the NICU parents that are listening right now. I just wish you and Juniper and Tom a long and happy, beautiful life together. I think y'all are all so very blessed. Oh, thank you so much. There wasn't, there wasn't really anything like this, you know, for us when we were in the NICU. So I think what you're doing is really important. I do too. I think it will be very, or I hope it will be uh, a blessing of encouragement for all the parents that are listening. So thank you so much. Give our love to Juniper. And I look forward to hearing you speak again in the very near future. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Our quote to remember today is by Kelly French. Love is the miracle. Every day with Juniper had been a miracle. She'd remade our world. I was a mother now. I knew what that meant. It was not a child's imagining anymore. In order for NICU babies to thrive after discharge, they need smart, informed parents who understand their needs and are emotionally and physically capable of caring for a medically fragile child. Peer-to-peer support is an effective tool for helping parents navigate their NICU stay. Support from a caring and informed NICU graduate parent helps a new family feel more capable, confident, and ready to face the journey ahead. To request support, volunteer, or donate, please visit our website at handtohold.org.